This is the 2006 Palm Springs Bible School. Brother Anthony Whitehorn's topic is Be Ye Transformed. The title for his third class is Transformation, How Can I? Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. Hey, that's great. I could just keep on saying that. And... Good morning, Anthony. Yeah, it's lovely. Okay, okay. Okay, that's really good. I'm going to take you lot home with me. You look great. Um, so this morning, uh, we're looking at uh, transformation, how can I? And let's just have a little bit of a, a, a resume as to what we've considered so far this week. On the first day, as you remember, we looked at transformation, what is it? And we, we recognise that transformation is a change, an internal change, but a fundamental change from the caterpillar to the butterfly. It's not a conformation, it's not the change in outwardly things. What God is interested in is how we're changing inside. And the question is, have we changed from the time of our baptism to now? Are we different people? And that's the challenge. And day two, we looked at uh, why we should change. And why should we? Because, and I've got it today, we're full. Hey, we're full. For the tape, this is a glass I'm holding up. Um, uh, we're full of air, naturally. And our responsibility is to displace that air. How? With the fruit of the Spirit. So naturally we are full of the nature of man. And our responsibility is to displace it with the fruit of the Spirit. And now today, as you can see, how can we do that? That is a real challenge, isn't it? We understood what it is, we understood why we need to do it, but how? How can we go through this process of transformation? God has given us a, each of us a period of time on this earth with the responsibility to transform. And so in the next, and I promise it will be, 40 minutes. <laughs> I went on a long time yesterday. I never do that. I really got carried away. I'm sorry. Um, t- today, we're going to, in the next 40 minutes, look at how can I transform? I want to start off by uh, telling you a little story about um, something that happened to me. It was around about oh, 15 years ago now, and I was out with my boss in the car in London. And I was driving along. He was sitting next to me, and we came up to some traffic lights. Do you call them traffic lights? Yeah. You're good, good. <laughs> it's like trans- I need a translator, actually, don't I? Uh, so we came up to the traffic lights. And I came and I stopped. And in front of me was a motorbike. And the motorbike stopped and I stopped. And I was talking away to my boss in the car. And I looked up and the guy on the motorbike fell off it. And I looked at my boss. And I looked again at the guy on the bike. And I'm thinking, oh, my dear. And he was like struggling on this bike. We better go and help him. So I got out of the car, r- ran over, pulled up the bike and pulled him up, and he was all a bit shaken. And uh, I said, are you all right? He said, yeah, yeah. So what's going on? And he said, you're not going to believe this. This is absolutely true. He said, you're not going to believe this. He said, but today is the first day that I've ridden my motorbike without the sidecar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is absolutely true, though. <laughs> And, and I'm thinking to myself, and, and as time's gone, I'm thinking to myself, I bet, I bet that guy has now learned that when he stops, he's got to put his foot down. <laughs> but there's a lesson there, isn't there? And the lesson is this, is that we've got to learn different activities. Because 
we've been riding along with a sidecar. And now we've got to actually stretch out and put our foot down. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be thinking about learning to do different activities. And there are certain tools to assist us in this process of transformation. I have um, what I call the Tuesday afternoon syndrome. And the reason I call it the Tuesday afternoon syndrome is because Tuesday afternoon isn't halfway through the week, and it's still a little bit too early on in the week. And the weekend is a little bit far away both sides. So Tuesday afternoon I feel a bit, mm. And the challenge for me on Tuesday afternoon is to try and think spiritually. Uh, because I don't have those injections quite so regularly on the Tuesday afternoon as I've had perhaps at the weekend. And I need some of those tools to assist me to try and be much more like Jesus on a Tuesday afternoon. And um, that's what we want to try and think about, therefore, in this transformation, and how can I? I I want you to think about this situation. The US Olympic Committee, what they have done is they've looked at everybody in the whole of the US... And uh, what they have done is they've taken all the, all Canada, um, and they, what they have done is the Olympic Committee of your country <laughs> have actually fed in all the body mass details, all the muscular structure, all the bone composition of absolutely everybody in your country. And the phone rings in your house. And you go over and you pick up the phone... And it is the US Olympic Committee, or your country's Olympic Committee. And they phone up and they tell you that they've analysed all the data that there is on everybody in your country. And you, you have actually been chosen from all this data to bring home the gold medal in the marathon in the next Olympic Games. And you think, have you got the right number? So, no, we've got the right number. And it's abso- we've analysed absolutely everything. You put the phone down and you're thinking, oh, well, wow, that's actually quite incredible. And you sort of have this vision, don't you, of, of running through the finish line, everybody cheering, going back to your hometown and being taken around on, a, on, a, on a, a, an open-deck bus and people waving at you and cheering. And that is all fantastic stuff for you. And that's going to be the whole purpose of your life in the next two years, is to focus on on that marathon in the next two years. And then you think again, you think, hold on one moment. I can't run a marathon. Even if I really, really tried, I can't run a marathon. And that's the challenge. The challenge is, is that to run a marathon... You've got to train, not merely try. And that's what we have got to do in our marathon, is train, not just try. It says this in in Timothy. Let me read it to you. Uh, It says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And that's what we are here to do in terms of our transformation. It is a process of training. And that's why I chose today's readings of 1 Corinthians 9. Would you just turn it to it with me, please? Because we are athletes. We may not feel like athletes sometimes, but we are athletes in a race. 
And 1 Corinthians 9 says this. And I'm going to read it from the New International Version, if I may, because it picks out a word there which I want to use. Verse 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That's what we do. We go into strict training. This life of transformation is about training. They were referring to here about the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games was similar to the Olympic Games and around this region at that time in Asia Minor. Uh, and what would happen is that the competitors had to go into 10 months worth of training. And if they didn't go into those 10 months worth of training, they were actually disqualified. You had to train in order to even qualify for the Isthmian Games. And that's for you and me as well. We are in a period of training. But for what are we training? Because I tell you what, that's what we need to have this vision of as well. For the training I would suggest that you do for a marathon is slightly different from the training that you do for a a pie-eating contest, for instance. They are completely different. And what are we training for? We are training to be more like Jesus. We are fulfilling the purpose for which we were made. So, transformation is not merely about trying, it's about training. And the Latin word for training is disciplina. And from that word, we get the word disciplines. So, training requires a set of disciplines. Now, I think that the word disciplines has some very unfortunate connotations because disciplines we think of being very rigid and very mechanical. But that's because we focus on the disciplines themselves as opposed to focusing on the purpose itself. So, we need to think about the purpose for which we are training and have some disciplines, train ourselves into doing certain things that will help us transform. Because it's not just by really gritting our teeth that we're going to transform. We're going to have to train as well. But spiritual transformation, just remember, is not about what we do, it's about why we do it. That's the inner change. Okay, but I want to ask you this question. Who's in control of that training? Who is in control of your training and your transformation in that training? Let's have a look at Philippians. Um, The book of Philippians, and we'll be looking at uh, chapter 2. And um, let's look at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
There, it's down to us, isn't it? So it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. No, it's not. Doesn't it say work for your salvation? Doesn't it say work at your salvation? It says work out your salvation. And that actually literally means finish, complete your salvation. How? Humbly, with fear and trembling. You see, it's not you who necessarily does it. Because so often we quote verse 12 and we ignore verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is the potter. We are the clay. We just make ourselves available for him to work in us. It is not us who works at our salvation. We just complete it. It is God working in us to transform us. What does it say in Romans? Let me just read this to you. In Romans verse 10, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, I'll read it to you. It says this, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit of God works in us to enable the fruit of the Spirit to be shown. And it is our responsibility to allow the Spirit to work in us. You see, transformation is the work of God. And we allow God, invite God, ask God to come and work in us, to work out our salvation, humbly, with fear and trembling. So how does that work? I liken it to the contrast between a motorboat and a sailing boat. With a motorboat, what you do is when you turn the rudder, turn the wheel, isn't it? When you turn the wheel, the boat goes in that direction. When you put your foot on the accelerator, or whatever you do with a boat, I don't know how you do a boat, you move the accelerator, the boat goes faster. It's all very completely responsive. You're completely in control. That's not how it is, I would suggest with our transformation. I would liken our transformation to be like a sailing boat. It is our responsibility to hoist the sails. It is our responsibility to steer the rudder. It is our responsibility to trim the sails. But we are totally dependent on the wind. We can discipline ourselves to spiritual practices, but we cannot engineer them. Now that's quite a challenge, isn't it? For when you think about it, the experienced sailor, what does he do? The experienced sailor, he can look at the water and he knows and he can look at the sky and he's been out there a lot and he's done it a lot and he can read the signs very well. And he knows exactly which direction the wind is going to come from. So he can actually get the sails trimmed properly, and the rudder and the boat in the right direction. That's our responsibility. And then it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. 
And what we should be doing is we should be looking for those signs in our lives, for God acting and working in our lives, I would suggest. Moses, when he was walking along, it says, beautiful words this, as he's walking along in the wilderness, in the desert place, looking after his father-in-law's sheep, he turned aside, it says, beautiful phrase, he turned aside. How often do you think that he saw a bush smouldering? I would suggest probably quite a, quite a few times. But on this occasion, he turned aside because he saw something remarkable. Now that happens, I would suggest, in our lives regularly. And we have a responsibility to turn aside. For God is at work in our lives. And to enable us to be transformed, we must be responsive to see God working in our lives. The disciples that we are, and we are actors out of disciplines, should create opportunities in our attitudes and our motives for God to work. And here are just two um, tools that I would like to consider. Um, we're going to look at just two tools this morning that we can use in our training routine. And that sort of helps us trim the sails and steer the rudder to enable the wind to blow. The first is this one. When I get home uh, every evening, I get home, say hi to Sally, kiss, kids, and, things, and I go, the first thing I do is I go to my post. I flick through the post, and I, the bill, bill, yeah, mail, or whatever. And, there's, and the ones that are handwritten to me, they're the one I stop at, and I open it up. And I read, and Sally says, are you going to talk to me? I'm reading this. <laughs> haven't seen me all day. Isn't it, it is so fascinating reading letters, particularly the handwritten ones. Why? Because they're personal to you. And so is this one. It's a handwritten letter, personally, to you, to me. God is communicating directly to me. It's a personal letter to me about him. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And the more that I discover aspects of God in this book, the more that I love him. We talked about that yesterday, that agape love is head and heart. It's not just head and it's not just heart. But the more I understand him, the more I love him. The more I realise that I want to have a relationship with him. And that's what Christianity is, of course. It's a relationship. I, uh, I was running a workshop at um, a Christadelphian conference that we have in the UK called Hodderston. Some of you may have heard of it. It's advertised in the Christadelphian. And uh, uh, I was running a workshop there, and um, I was, it was on the uh, letters, um, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches. And... Uh, I wanted, once we've gone through the letters, I just wanted people to think about what letter would Jesus write to the Christadelphians? The letter to the Christadelphians in 2006. 
And I wanted us to, first of all, I said to the group, okay, first thing you do is write down the two things that we would be condoned for. We would be, well done, you are really good. I ran this workshop nine times in total. And on every single occasion, the people in the, the nine workshops said that the thing that Jesus would write to the Christadelphians about saying, well done, is that we are a people of the book. And we are. It's a wonderful gift that we have. And this fellowship that we have is marvellous in that we focus on the book. And we would be congratulated, in inverted commas, for that. Recognising the beauty of the scriptures. The question here is, why do we do Bible study? Why do we use this tool this discipline of looking at the scriptures? Is it because we want to get 100% in the heavenly entrance exam? You see, I don't think it is. Because looking at the scriptures is about the renewing of minds, not the acquisition of information. It's about changing the mind, not changing the brain. And I, I am the same. I do the same thing. I have a lot of credence for those people who know their Bible really well. And that's really good. But the key for you and me is, are we putting it into practice? And that's what, that's what Jesus looked at. I tell you what the Pharisees actually knew their law really well. But the amazing thing is, is that Jesus never really criticised the Pharisees for having wrong doctrine. And they had many of them. But he certainly criticised them for their wrong way of life. Would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3? It's a really well-known passage. And it's a challenge, actually, this one. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You know it well. For all scripture is God-breathed. Sorry, let me read the... Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness... But it goes on. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. It doesn't say that he can be really well informed. It says we read our scriptures. Why? So that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is no good just to accumulate the knowledge if we're not going to put it into practice. Because that way we haven't been transformed. We've just accumulated knowledge. So when we read our scriptures, we should do so such that goodness naturally comes out. That way we are displacing the natural man. G.K. Chesterton was a, a famous Christian writer. And he was interviewed once, um, and uh, they asked him, they said, 
Right, you, you are on a desert island. And you are on this desert island, and you, Mr Chesterton, who is a Christian, you can have any book you like, any book at all. Yeah, no holes barred here, any book you like. You're on this desert island. So people, oh, nobody's going to choose. It's going to be obvious, isn't it? And G.K. Teston thought for a while, and he turned around and said, you know, the book that I would like if I was on this desert island is Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. <laughs> you see, he was trapped on a desert island. He didn't want to be informed. He didn't want to be entertained. He wanted to be saved. That's the same as you and me. We are on an island. And this book here is equipping us for every good work. Not accumulating knowledge. It is a practical, a dynamic book. And that's the challenge for you and me is to use it. So when we take on all this information, how is it changing my life? How is it changing my motives? Not how much am I learning? So God is training and talking to me through the Bible in order to change me. That's the first tool. And the second tool is this one. God is training and talking to me through prayer. Um, I, we may, may be known as a people of the book. I suggest that I'm not necessarily known as a person of prayer. I pray a lot when things aren't going very well. My prayer times go like that in times of crisis. But the rest of the time, I do really rely on my own strength and my own cleverness. And that's a shame. I don't think personally that I've really discovered the real power of prayer. What does James say? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And are we righteous? Yes, we are. And what is righteous? Righteous, if you remember, I said in my first talk, is being put right with God. We've come from wrath down there to grace up here. So we have been put right with God. We have been justified with God. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I don't do that. How powerful is prayer? Don't look at it now, but in Revelation chapter 8 is a marvellous situation. Do you know what happens? And I miss it. I missed it until quite recently when I was reading it. I was quite surprised. There was silence in heaven, it says, for half an hour in Revelation 8. And the angel comes forward and offers in the golden censer incense of the prayers of the saints. 
And then immediately after that, in Revelation 8, there follows tremendous judgment on the earth as if it were a response to all the prayers. And what's the lesson there? The lesson there is that, firstly, heaven comes to a standstill when we pray. That's quite a nice thing to think about, isn't it? And secondly, things happen when we pray. My children, I love my children, desperately. And um, when they ask me things, and for things, I want to give it, give it to them. Without spoiling them, I want to give them things. And there are many parents in here, here in this room here today, and I know you're the same that you want to give things to your children when they ask you for things. Because you love them. I think, I know, God has given us families in order to understand more the relationship that we have with him. I understand much more about God being a father. And that's the beauty of parenthood, that you do understand God better I have personally found, by virtue of that. And therefore, God wants to give us things when we ask, for, uh, ask him for them. So what are some points on prayer? The first point is this. Prayer, prayer is powerful. Brother Bob, um, he came to um, Bible school, didn't you Bob? It must be about three years ago in, in the UK. As I said, we don't have many Bible schools, and this I think was was one of the, about the three that we have, and Bob came to speak there. And Bob, you must have talked about prayer in that Bible school. I know you did. I wasn't there, but Sally, my wife, went. The reason I know this is because Bob handed out a little slip. He's probably done this with you, I'm sure. Yeah, he has, hasn't he? Yeah. He just, he just regurgitates the same stuff, let me tell you. <laughs> and I just nick half it. Um, and he handed out a prayer list with 12 numbers on it. And what you had to do at that Bible school is write down 12 people you're going to pray about. I didn't know this was going on because I wasn't at the Bible school. A year later, I couldn't find my Bible, so I picked up Sally's. I opened it up, and this piece of paper fell out. A year later. And I picked it up, and there were 12 names on there. And I read them. And I was staggered. I was staggered because something had happened to every single one of those people, which is quite dramatic. That is the power of prayer. And I don't think that I have properly understood that or realised that. So that's my first point on prayer. My second point is, um, is this one. Uh, the very first prayer that is offered in the Bible, I think, was probably offered by Abraham. Abraham uh, was there, and um, he was talking to God, and uh, he said, oh God, you can't do that. How about God? How about if there were 50 people? Okay, so God, 50. Yeah, I'll accept 50. So, so, so God, how about if 40 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, if 40 people w w were okay, would you say 40 people? Yeah, yeah, said so God, I'd, I'd say 40. Okay, well, how about, how about 30, God? How about if there were 30 people, God? Would, would you say 30? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a good answer. I'd say 30. What about 20? Good. Would, would you say 20 people in Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 20 good people? Yes, yeah, good. I'd say 20. God, if there were just 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you save 10 people? Yes, yeah, God. I'd save 10 people if there were 10 people, good people there. I'd save the whole city. He negotiated with God. But he believed that his power, his prayer, was powerful and made a difference. And he knew God. He wasn't irreverent. He was humbly talking to God and he knew his position. But I put it to you in his personal prayer. In his personal prayer, he was in a way impersonant, but he was persistent and he was very natural. And I don't want you to misunderstand some of those things. But that's what God wants. I think that God wants us to be persistent. He absolutely wants us to be natural. And this is our personal prayers. Personally, I find it very hard, actually, to, to give a, a, a public prayer. I think that's a really difficult thing to do. In my personal prayers, he wants me to talk to him in a very close relationship. Just like Abraham did. So that's my second point on prayer that I've learned from the scriptures. And my third point, what do we pray for? What should we pray for? My prayers are a whole long list of asking. There's a little bit of, of thank you in there. And sometimes I must admit, I'm trying to get into the discipline of saying, I'm just going to give a thank you prayer. And I give the thank you prayer. A little bit later, I'll have to be asking prayer after that. So it, it is something that we get into. It's, it's a discipline in the way that we pray. But there's always a gap as well. Whatever prayer that I pray personally um, on my own, there's always a gap between what I'm supposed to pray for and what I'm actually thinking. And you might have the same sometimes. My mind does wander off. I'm not very good. And I thought about this and I prayed about it. And I, I sort of come to this conclusion that actually perhaps I should be praying for what is on my mind. Nehemiah did, when he stood before the king. He just offered that quick prayer. Because that was what was on his mind. Moses did. He wanted a proper job description. Even Elijah did. Even Elijah didn't like people calling him names. Well, okay, he was going bald. I have some, some understanding of that. So pray what is on your mind. And that's my third point. Lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. It's a personal thing. It's a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And my fourth and final point on prayer is this one. Prayer is all about speaking, isn't it? No. Prayer is all about listening. Absolutely, throughout the scriptures, it seems true to me that God will always, always answer prayer. He will always say either yes, no, or wait. 
Those are always what God will say. He will never, ever ignore us. But how does God answer those prayers? Well, he answers the prayers like this. He answers our prayers for us to be listening. My son James, um, when he was studying for his exams, um, he was struggling with his chemistry. Now, my brother-in-law is a chemistry teacher. And I said to him, I said to James, James, why don't you go and phone Uncle Malcolm, you know, your uncle, who's this chemistry teacher, and, um, and he'll help you. And James said, I don't want to go and phone him. He said, why not? He said, the reason is, is that he doesn't give me the answer. He just keeps on asking me more questions. That's a good teacher, isn't it? For those of you who are teachers, you know. You just keep on asking back questions. I'll tell you what, he is a great teacher. When we ask him questions, he'll ask questions back of us. And that way, we learn more. So prayer is about listening. And seeing God active in our lives. So what have we learned this morning? In how, what tools can we learn, can, can we use? Transformation, how can we transform practically in our everyday life? We've appreciated what it was, what is transformation. We've appreciated as to why we should do it, the displacement theory. So how can we do it? God does the changing. We do the training. We set our sails. We trim the sails, we move the rudder. He blows the wind. And we get into training. That's our responsibility, to do the training, to read the scriptures, and to offer the prayers. And the Bible is a practical training manual. It is a life-changing, not a brain-changing manual. For it is there to enable us to do good works, not to accumulate knowledge. Prayer is a powerful method of listening to God. I always thought that prayer was about speaking. Prayer is about listening. And finally, God will change and transform us by continually asking us very pertinent questions in our lives. And that's the wonderful life that we have in the Lord, that he cares about us because he wants to have an everlasting relationship with us and he is transforming us as long as we allow him.